It's time to breathe new life into the social entrepreneur by empowering you to make a living through fulfilling work that will impact lives. You'll make money, but more importantly, you'll make a difference. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. It's time to build a business with purpose. Now here's your host, Adam Force. What's up, everybody? This is your host, Adam Force. Um, thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to the show. I'm excited about today. We are talking to Sasha Fisher, um, an incredible, incredible woman who is the... Um, the mind and intelligence behind a company organization, I should say, uh, Spark Micro Grants. And they are just doing incredible work and they have lots of really cool transparency on their website. Um, and so, you know, the, they've helped over 150 communities and what they do is they try to help different villages, right, in developing areas design and launch impact projects. I mean, they're creating like, these these community objectives bringing people together and they all are starting it's like they're becoming entrepreneurs and they're solving problems in their areas working together as like a democracy um assigning different people to different roles um and this generates not only problem solving but income and all kinds of other things it's a pretty incredible um uh, organization that they have and they're really invigorating a lot of uh, big change so you could stop by their site and you'll see some really cool stuff with their financial statements and and how it works and things like that um, so we're gonna dive into you know what really motivated Sasha to get started with this and why this is important to her and how how did she actually I mean how do you do that right how, how do you start figuring out how to help these communities in that way it seems like a really big endeavor and it is but uh, their success has been great and she's gonna walk us through how that works um guys so so much good receptivity on the latest issue of change creator magazine so thank you so much and if you have not filled out the uh, survey please let us know your feedback we have new uh some new rollouts coming out in july so the magazine will be uh, undergoing some updates uh, on a new platform um, we're going to have some really cool options for you. And this is all based on your feedback. So again, thank you very much for sharing it. This is, um, you know, our magazine and we all have a say in how this information um, is displayed, but also what kind, you know, we want to hear from you and make it a community thing. Um, so keep an eye out um, for the next one in July. And if you haven't caught up with us yet on the uh, most recent edition with Dale Partridge and Ned Tozen, these are incredible stories. You don't want to miss them. They're packed with with, uh, really great strategies and insights. So hopefully these things are valuable and will help you with your journey. Um, whether it's inspiration or you already have a business, um, this stuff will really uh, move you move the needle forward for you. Um, all right, guys, we're going to dive into this conversation. And uh, don't forget to stop by. Leave us reviews, please. We really need your support. Um, you know, this, this helps us keep the show going. Uh, so if you could stop by, whether it's the magazine or the podcast, your reviews and feedback are really important to us on the app stores. All right, let's jump into it. Hey, Sasha, thanks so much for joining the Change Creator Podcast show. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Absolutely. I am super pumped to talk to you. I love what you're doing. Um, and I think we need to unpack that for people and just kind of dive into how you're making it happen. Um, so I, I always like to just get a little bit of background for people. So before uh, Spark Micro Grants, what was going mm -hmm. on in your life and, 
and what what happened to give you your aha moment and make you go, hey, this is this is where I need to go. This is what I need to be doing. Sure. Well, I was really fortunate. I was at university prior to starting Spark. And um, when I got to university, I knew I wanted to work with an NGO that was doing work internationally so I could have some firsthand experience of what's happening on the ground. In high school, I had done some fundraising for nonprofits in Sierra Leone, and I realized I really have no way of knowing what aid is working better or worse. Mm. So what's the difference between donating to one organization versus another one? Um, And I really didn't have much of a clue there. You know, there are some ratings online, Charity Navigator, a handful of others, but they're not actually telling you much of a story about impact. And so when I went to university, I decided to get involved with an organization that was building schools in South Sudan. Fantastic group of individuals committed uh, during this opportune time in South Sudan's uh, trajectory. It had just gained semi-autonomous status emerging from over two decades of civil war. And and the region had one of the lowest access rates to education in the entire world, uh, had very uh, poor mater- you know, maternal mortality rates, and, um, and really faced a number of challenges. And so when I got involved with this organization, it felt really important. They were building specialized secondary schools for girls in a region that really desperately needed education, and that was in a moment of potential growth. Now, That was all very exciting for me. When I was in sophomore year, I had the opportunity to travel with the team to the field. Great group of people. Um, When I got there, the country director taught me a lot about the context in the region um, and showed me around to other aid projects that to be honest, we're sitting around and not being used very effectively, empty school buildings and broken water taps, which is what many folks see when they walk around um, areas that receive a lot of aid money. And the more devastating part of this than having projects that weren't being used was that it really felt like aid organizations were letting South Sudanese sit on the sidelines and not even be part of the conversation of what they were building. Uh, And the the result of that was a local communities didn't have ownership over those school projects or water taps, um, but B, also the point of independence, right, which South Sudan just fought for two decades for. Um, is that you get to have control over your own future and have that ability to define what the future holds for yourself and your families. And that feels like a fundamental human right to me. Uh, and, And I did not see that happening in South Sudan. And so when I left South Sudan, I wanted to know who is figuring out how to get power into the hands of local families and communities, whether it's abroad or here at home in the U.S., because all of us have that right to define our own future. And so when I graduated from university, I wanted to explore that question further and move to Rwanda uh, to explore that and eventually start Spark. Wow. Okay. A lot, lot going on there. Um, so two things for me, just to get level set. Um, you seem to have, right when you started your, your story there, you dove right into the fact that you wanted to work with nonprofits and you wanted to pursue this particular path. Mm. So you're in university, mm-hmm. which obviously when the, when the door opened, you, you took advantage of it. But what, what, I guess, what made you want to pursue that? How did you know you wanted to support nonprofits? Why, why weren't you going mm. for a for-profit business? Like, so what led you there? And then, and then I'll have a question after that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, thanks for bringing that up. I think I was quite, you know, when I was younger, I, I was quite idealistic and I didn't understand why we don't yet live in a world where everybody can meet their most basic needs and live with dignity. Yes. And the idea that we don't live in that world yet then leads you to the question, well, who is trying to build that world? And while businesses are certainly an important component of that, 
and states, nation states, are also an important component of that. There is a third sector that we haven't let mature as far as it needs to, which is the nonprofit sector. And that can range from you know, models that are purely philanthropically funded to hybrid to sometimes even generating some income, but it's really focused around human impact. And that is what I care about primarily. And so the question is just the vehicle to get there. And nonprofits really have a strict, you know, they are strictly in line with that is their mission is to impact um, a population in a positive way. And so it doesn't muddle it with the, you know, having to have a income stream, um, people motivated by money versus impact, or having to be motivated by certain interest groups. Um, you can, I think there's an opportunity to be as clear as possible about the mission and the impact that you want to create without muddying it with any other types of compromises. Now, of course, some groups end up having to compromise, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, the no, idea. It's an interesting, you know, it's really interesting and I hear different opinions and I love to hear like why you went with nonprofit, right? Um, and why some people go for profit. You know, we spoke to Dr. Alistair Harris and he's doing all kinds of work up near Madagascar and other areas of the world. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, I decided to go as a for-profit business to support my conservation efforts because I needed a, mm -hmm. a reliable, sustainable model that I knew was going to bring in income. So I needed that income right. to actually make my conservation efforts happen. Um, mm -hmm. And he felt that, okay, if I did nonprofit, he's like, he just didn't want to get into the fundraising game and he felt like it might right. not be as reliable. And mm -hmm. it's just interesting to hear the uh, both perspectives. And I think they're both great perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you have found though, and, and I think the thing that really stood out to me was you feel that the nonprofit takes away some of the pressure of, you know, I guess, corruption through money, basically, in decision making mm -hmm. and things like that. Is that, is that, a, is sure. that kind of what you're and saying? And it's not, it's not a perfect model, right? It's not that corruption can't happen anywhere. Humans right. are, corruption can happen, right? right. <laughs> what you can do if you're managing it well is actually be accountable to your end user. And that's what's most important here. If your mission of your organization is to support communities to improve local conditions, then your model better back up the ability for those communities to do that in the best way possible. Right. And what you'll see with, if you're trying to serve people facing rural poverty is it's really hard to make money off of those approaches because there's not enough capital in those regions. And there is definitely a trade-off. If it's if you're talking about rural poverty, there's a trade-off between being able to make money and serve the population that you actually want to serve. And so we shouldn't get lost in thinking about ideals of being able to do both. We should just make sure we're focused on impact. I think that you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it is. No matter which which model you really approach, as long as your your focus is that mission approach, and it's mm -hmm. not you know something else. If you could stick to the path, then hopefully all your decisions will be based on what gives the most impact. Um, yeah. You know, and whenever you're the, the traditional profit model is you know task efficiency versus you know social efficiency, if you will. Right. And that just it's a whole. That's and you know when you get down to it, and you know what we do with the magazine stuff, it's, it's, there's a lot of like. It comes down to decision making, right? It's mm -hmm. it really makes a difference. You're making decisions based on impact, which is going to change the way you behave and the decisions you make. So mm -hmm. I think it it's an, it was a really a good point. It's right on the money. Um, uh, you know, I'm always interested to hear. So now you have this idea. You found this. You found your passion, and you kind of got your aha moment because you saw. Okay, well then, who's in control of? 
um, making sure that the local communities become empowered, right? Mm-hmm. And once you noticed that that was actually a gap, right, there's a need there, you started, I guess, exploring what you could do. And so micro, so how, how did um, uh, Spark Micro Spark? come into mm-hmm. uh, play? Like, wh- where did that come from? And how did you start modeling it out? So now you're like, all right, what does this look like? So how did you mm-hmm. take your first steps? Right. So I, the first thing was the easiest step was move to Rwanda, go just go to a region uh, where maybe there's a, a local community based organization that you can learn from uh, and, and meet some folks on the ground and pilot some things out. Um, to, to be honest, I had never actually been to Rwanda. And when I went, I really didn't want to be an expert in anything because the whole point is that whatever happens should be owned and driven by uh, the local community. Right. And so so when I got to Rwanda, uh, it was really about exploring with partners on the ground, how do you best support a community, a village of sorts, right, yeah. to launch and be the founders of their own development program and after asking lots of questions to government and business and nonprofits, we came up with a little bit of a facilitation process paired with a seed grant that we would provide directly to uh, villages, but through a, a process that would hopefully be inclusive. So it's not just a handful of local men making decisions for it, but it's women and men, young and old, making decisions for it. Right. So, okay. So first thing is you moved to Rwanda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And where were you moving from? At that, the, was the, at that, that was the easy and the fun part. I had just graduated from university. I, you know, came back from Vermont where I was in school to New York for a month okay. and then moved to Rwanda essentially. Okay. So here's, I, I just want to talk about that real quick because I, I think, you know, when you have someone who's an aspiring entrepreneur, they look at something like that and they're going to say, yeah, right. I'm not going to move out to this other country I've never been to. <laughs> you know, it seems like such a huge leap, right? And so mm-hmm. what were you feeling at the time? Like, was there a barrier of fear at all saying, Ooh, I like, that's kind of scary. I don't know about like, what, what were your feelings? And how did you, I guess, come to the conclusion that this was the right move? There was, to be honest, it was the least scary part of this whole process. Really? Moving to Rwanda was wonderful. There was really no question in my mind. What was driving me was a bunch of questions about how do we use our foreign aid money and how do we use it better? And mm. you really can't figure that out unless you're in the area that's receiving the foreign aid money. Yeah. Uh, and so that part was was not as scary as thinking through, oh, now we're going to have responsibility of building a team and an organization um, once that came about. And I, I don't think everybody needs to build an organization to be entrepreneurial, right? The best teams are full of entrepreneurs who are working together and have complementary skill sets and ways of thinking to build a larger scale movement altogether. And I think that's really the challenge for our generation right now is that a lot of us have gone out and tried to create innovations or follow our passions. And we need to figure out how do we get some of the innovations that have been created to be institutionalized into um, the institutions that already exist in our world that maybe we were initially frustrated by, but actually maybe now have a role to play in reshaping. And I would love to see more of our generation going into figuring that question out. And I think in the next few decades, we'll see a lot of impressive work done there. Do you have any, and I'll put you on the spot here, you may not have an answer, but do you have any examples of that that you might throw out there to just illuminate what you're talking about for people? Sure. I mean, even in our own work in in Rwanda, for example, we've been working in Rwanda now for seven years. We've have over 56 community partners that we've directly facilitated with Spark staff, and now we're working in a way that I think is 
uh, even more meaningful, just hand in hand with the government in Rwanda mm-hmm. to strengthen village leadership so that the village leaders in each of the villages we could be working in are actually the ones running the process and making that process be. So our process is a series of weekly meetings where village families within villages are, are collectively planning for their village's future, yeah. right? Saying, in the future, we want better education for our kids, so we're going to build a school, or we want to improve food access, and so we're going to start a farm. And all of those ideas come from families within the village, and they work on it together. Um, this is essentially a, a good governance practice, right? Yeah. Get families together and, and allow them to drive change. And so we're in, we're supporting the government to just embed that into what they're doing so they can accomplish their own goals. And for yes. us, I think that's an important next step because we really are there just to serve partners who already exist and will be there in the long term and know much better what's happening in the region and what will be happening in the region in the future. Um, and we can just play a facilitation and support role. Gotcha. Yeah, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. So you went, you understood what's going on in the community, you understand what the government there is trying to do, and then you became a bridge in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm looking at your uh, financial report that you have on your site and you, you have a nice, uh, very simplified layout. Um, let's just talk about the Spark process that you have modeled out and has it changed over time or has it been a consistent Absolutely. process? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. yeah, every year. Okay. <laughs> and that's based on just feedback and it's natural evolution and stuff like that. Um, yeah, exactly. We ahead. test Sorry, go ahead to constantly improve on the process. I'm sure you see the same thing with Change Creator, but yeah. you're always learning new things and, and pushing the limits. Uh, oh, my God. I, yeah, people I work with sometimes are like, wait, which direction are we going? I'm like, we, we've got to pivot. <laughs> like, we're going this way. <laughs> things exactly. change quick, you know, and um, it, you never know. The feedback comes in, and yeah, you're right. So, all right, so looking at your process here, um, just to level set and give people an idea of what's going on. So you go into a village community, and you do one month of discussion for community building. So you get the right people involved. You start creating a vision. I mean, you got to know where you're going and, and what problem you want to solve, right? Mm-hmm. And then you do two months of goal setting. So h- how come the, the, the goal setting is two months? Like, So you're brainstorming and just trying to figure out. That's where you're saying, are we doing something for education? Are we doing something mm-hmm. for agriculture? Which direction? Or what are we focusing on? Is that... Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. They're also in that time period brainstorming pathways to reach one of those goals. And this was one of the major changes that we had in the process a few years in, which was changing from a problem solution framework. So often social entrepreneurs think about what is the problem you're solving for and then what's the solution, right? If families are, are hungry and that's a problem, the solution maybe is to feed the family's food, right? Or something along those lines. And midway through, we decided to change and, and, focus on goals. So instead of the problem, which maybe you're feeling today about, focusing in three years from now, what is the village you want to live in? And then figuring out how do you build towards that What does that look like? Right, right, right. Exactly. So so is that part one in the vision? Like that's the vision? So the first month is really just the community talking about the history and the assets that already exist within the village, Uh, what have you tried out in the past, and then month two and three, they're setting goals and and developing pathways. Yeah. So you're doing a little bit of like an inventory almost, like what do we have, what's been done, where are we at, kind of level set, and then you start getting into actual, let's start building a pathway forward, and we set these goals and what that's going to look like and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you have proposal development, which takes about two months, and you're going to be 
creating financial sustainability strategy, that's a big one. So, um, you know, you have to actually now, does this change a lot village to village, um, you know, the, the financial strategies? So usually it's it's pretty basic training just to talk about cash flow, right? How much money are you going to bring in through the project and how much are you going to need to spend to sustain it over time okay. and get it started in the first place? And a lot of those, you know, financial literacy learnings end up getting used right back in the household. So we keep it really simple um, and basic and just make sure it makes sense to everybody who's starting to plan for the project. And then also make sure, which is an important part, uh, that folks know their leaders have a responsibility to them to report out on project finances. So how much um, did they spend on certain things? How much money are they taking and showing those receipts and bank statements um, as an important transparency point? Yeah, yeah, because I guess, you know, obviously not everybody, you, you kind of create a board, I guess, of, le of like village leaders. Is that right? So the, the community members actually elect a village committee then to okay, so they manage elect. the program. Okay, yeah. so they are involved in that sense, meaning they're deciding who gets elected to do the, the leadership roles. Um, and Absolutely. then you offer the transparency so that you can make, they can all have uh, visibility into how money is being spent and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, all right, and then you do a technical review looking at the different uh, specific trainings and, uh, I guess, tech uh, specifications required in order to start, um, you know, addressing uh, the goals that they have. And then you have management support and future visioning. So can you just, I guess, give me a little summary on those last three there and, and, and ha land on that future visioning, what that means? Sure. So the last part of the, the process is once the community members have developed a local project idea. Mm -hmm. uh, they have they either do some site visits to existing projects that look similar. So if they're building a school, they visit a school nearby. Or we have a expert in school building, an architect, uh, maybe a, a professional in the education space, come and talk to community members that they can learn uh, about information uh, that's pertinent to the project. Right. And then after that, we actually disperse uh, a village fund. Every village that we work with receives $8,000 um, so that the community members can actually implement this project they've now dreamed up and make it a reality. As they're building, the, then they are able to build the project and families get together to, you know, if it's a school building, physically build the school uh, and launch the project. And they usually get folks from local government and um, businesses and media to attend to make sure everybody knows what's happening uh, in their village, which I think is quite remarkable that they're that set, you know, folks yeah. are savvy to who should we pull in now at this point in time. Right. I'm definitely way more savvy than I've been. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Very cool. And so then the future visioning you have, um, yeah. you're building partnerships, it says here with local organizations, government officials. So this is obviously kind of saying, all right, we're here now. Uh, looks like about a 12-month process. What do the next two mm -hmm. years look like, basically? Exactly. Uh, okay. And the whole point of this is that it's a it's a process for families to work through together, which is about village planning and then executing on some of those plans. So it will always be cyclical, right? Every year you might have new goals for your village and the next thing that you want to tackle, really similar to an organization, right? A lot of us go through these strategic planning processes where we get together and we talk about what we want the future of our organization to look like. And then you go back to it every year because things change or you accomplish some parts of it. Yeah. Um, and so with our process, it's just making sure that folks are looping back and thinking forward again. And we see 96% of our community partners do continue to meet on a regular basis, showing that they're continuing to drive change, even without 
our direct facilitation or support. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. You have a, you said 96. Um, so 96% of people, I mean, even when you're not there, they continue to meet. So, and that just exactly. led me to think, great. So what you've done is you showed them how to create a system that leads them to um, get agreement on ideas, build a plan to execute the ideas, and then actually manage and blah, blah, blah. So now they have a system in place and it seems they continue that system as you le- after you leave. Exactly. And that's what matters in the social change space is what are the systems that govern us, right? And I think, you know, sometimes you can see that as a, in a negative light that, you know, we want to push back against institutions that aren't treating us well. And then the question is, how do you build the right ones that do help us govern our own lives and govern our communities in a positive way, right? And so if, if you want to create long-term change, there's going to have to be a system that changes because the system defines behavior. Um, so a one-time thing you get short-term results from, if you change and and strengthen a local system to bring out more voices in, in a village and there's more equal participation across minority groups and majority groups and all the genders, uh, you actually have you know the potential for more things to come up in the future in a longer-term sustainability plan there. Right, right. Um- Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I guess you know you, I'm looking at this thing you have here, the the changing the trajectory. And if, if anybody listening here, you know, they have on their site their financial uh, documentation. Um, but there's a lot of other information in there, which is really cool. And I love what you did with the the changing the trajectory slide. Um, it mm-hmm. really shows the value um, that you guys can layer on and the different uh, path that people will go down uh, once they put these systems in place. So it's really nicely done. Um, Thanks. I'm just, oh, props to our communication yeah. team there. <laughs> yeah, it's good communications <laughs> for sure. I guess I'm curious, you know, once you, when you first went and you had your first community uh, building uh, initiative, did it, mm-hmm. how, so how has it changed since the first time you, you tried to help a village? What, what was that process? Was that process similar to this or, you know, how, was it dramatically right. different? I'm just curious how it's evolved. Sure. It's, it, it will, has definitely evolved a lot and will keep evolving. When we began, it was closer to a three-month process. Today, it's a six-month process with two years of follow-on support with quarterly check-ins per village. And a lot of what we've learned is just how do we support community members better? So we get feedback from families in the villages that we've worked with and ask, what's your favorite part of the process and which parts would you drop? You know, if we do this with another community next time, what should we save them from, essentially? And we've gotten great feedback. Families are, you know, we're really excited about goal setting and government advocacy. How do you advocate to your government for things? So we've started embedding that into the process. Um, People had challenges thinking about uh, you know, we had a complex system for objective setting versus goal setting. And so they were like, you know, make make that make more sense. And it was true. It was confusing, I think, for everybody. So so we simplified it. And we just wanted to make sure we're constantly listening to uh, the families that we're seeking to serve. And they've given us the best feedback on how to make this work better. Very cool. So it's become a six-month process now. And we've streamlined the grant. So it's not a project grant. It's a village grant. Every village gets the same amount of money. That way they don't have to play games to try to get more or less money out yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and that's been just great. And I think as an organization, we've also learned over the years so from the sector, you know, we started with this idealism, you know, get resources directly into the hands of families uh, that you're seeking to support, right? And and don't view families as beneficiaries or like that you're helping them, right? If you kind of have this idea that you're helping people, it seems more like a trade-off. 
And over time, I think we've learned more about what that means, right? That there, uh, there really is a lot of aid that's very prescriptive. And, and our model pushes the limits, I think, on how much ownership and how many of the decisions being made can you actually entrust with the folks that you're sending to serve. And we really think all of them should be left in the hands of those you're seeking to serve. Otherwise, they don't really matter that much. Um, and so we've, we've learned a lot about how, you know, um, how different this approach is from a lot of traditional aid that focus on the solutions versus supporting families to find their own solutions yeah. and become much more vehement on, on that methodology because it's really only fair to trust people with their own future. Right, right, right. Um, I'm just curious, and then I'll jump off this topic, but in, in this process, I'm looking in, in here, it looks like it was, tw you said six months, but it looks like it's 12. Are some of these happening in parallel? The core process is six months. Implementation goes on for a few months then, and okay. then we provide some management support. So implementation can range anywhere from months to six months. Yeah. And so depending on the project, like, okay, we decide we're going to do something for education. That's our most important thing right now. Mm -hmm. um, is your, is the strategy, are people like, so they get this 8,000, is it 8,000 for their mm -hmm. fund? Okay. They get the $8,000 and they invest in setting these goals. Now is that, so the, the whole focus is to create a, um, to bring that vision to life. And is that creating income for them at the same time? So is there, mm -hmm. is, okay, so there is an income. Often. Okay, mm -hmm. so there is. Interesting. Wow, that's really great. Um, yeah. So I, what, I, what I would love to know specifically about uh, what you're doing is how did you plan out your initial funding? How did you start funding your idea? Because now you're a nonprofit and I see you, you get stuff you know, from foundations or individuals, corporations, whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. When you first started and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to need some money if I'm going to make a loan to some village to, to start building uh, these ideas out, where did mm -hmm. that, where did you, how did you plan that out and how did you get your first dollars? That was probably the thing I knew least about here. Uh, and, and uh, you know, at one point I remember walking back home in Rwanda and thinking, if I actually do this, I'm going to need to figure out how to fundraise because we're yeah. going to need more money to reach more yeah. villages. And, uh, and it was a lot of learning in the early years. I really didn't have much background there other than the NGOs that I had, had done some work with during university mm -hmm. in a volunteer capacity. Uh, and, and it was just a lot of research and asking people to help me figure out how to do that. So the first few donations that we received early on were when I was in my senior year in university, I blind emailed tons of groups, <laughs> which is like a, not a great strategy for high percentage return rate. But we did get a few groups that emailed us back and said, you know, we don't necessarily get what you're doing. I thought, I don't really either yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get and, there. Uh, yeah, exactly. But we'll take a shot on you anyway. Here's a thousand bucks. Really? And, and so, these are like foundations or, or something? Both of them were foundations based in New Jersey. Absolutely wonderful folks. And I think people who were willing to take a risk, um, a baby, like a small risk, right? Small donation and just see how it goes. And I think in some capacity, we try to actually honor that when we're working with our village partners, right? Like let's take a risk on, on pretty much anyone and yeah. see who gets going. Yeah. Um, and it's turned out really well. So that one of the foundations actually funds us at over $100,000 today. So they've grown with us, which has been really special. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I'm looking here, your impact partners, and you have a huge list of community sponsors, which is, you know, these are the smaller dollars, but a lot of people are willing to chip in, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's only $10,000 to sponsor a village through this process. And not only for that, does every village receive a project and build a project of their own volition, right? Whether it's a school or a farm or an electricity line. But for every one project we seed fund, a second project is launched independently of us afterwards. So it's just an incredible thing for your buck for a $10,000 village sponsorship. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking here just to give you guys a sense. In 2016, you guys were able to get 1.5 million that you leveraged for your your programs and everything that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And year one, I think we were around ten thousand dollars, so a little bit of growth there. Really? <laughs> wow. Hey, you got to start somewhere, and that's the thing exactly. too. You know, we have a lot of these aspiring entrepreneurs, and you know, they have to realize that this is where things start. You know, it's one mm-hmm. you have to have the courage to move to to Rwanda, get yourself in the community. You know, <laughs> go out and travel. That'll give you, um, you know, that aha moment like you had. Um, and mm-hmm. then, of course, plan to do things really crappy <laughs> in the beginning. Exactly. Because <laughs> you're going to suck at it. <laughs> um, and listen, I like that a lot. And I love that, you know, you, when you have a cause, it's great because I'm seeing how so many people will get behind you, right? Yeah. Um, and all of us have a cause probably in our life, right? There's something that we really feel passionately about that deep down in us is just a truth that we hold about humanity that, that we would wish is you know, further shared with more people on our planet. Um, And it's great. There's lots of ways for people to plug into that, whether it's starting their own thing or contributing to existing thing or something else. And you don't have to go as far as Rwanda to do it also. I think there's a lot of great work to be done in the U.S. and neighboring countries near here, um, really anywhere in the world. Absolutely. And it just depends. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head. What is your truth that you're trying to uncover? And, you know, we have so many experiences in our life that it's not always clear. You know, actually, for most people, it's not clear. Um, So what really frustrates you? What are you passionate about? How do you start, like, you know, digging into those things? Um, And, you know, I I think 80% at least of the people I talk to, just like this conversation, they have a travel experience that really jolted them and they mm. go, wow. And they had their idea. And it's, you know, sometimes I think it's like a sensory overload, you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I spoke to Billy Parrish. He was hiking in the Himalayas and he was standing on a glacier that was melting right before his eyes. He dropped out of Yale university and started, you know, the, the energy action coalition. Then he started a solar company, but it's, it spurred his, his like, you know, inspiration and similar for you and right. so many other people people I you know I keep telling people get out there travel man you never know so one question I will use to I got two things so we'll do one last uh my little wrap-up question and then um we'll let people know how they can connect and learn more about what you're doing and all that good stuff um so if there was one place you would recommend um for someone to travel for a life-changing experience Where might that be and why? (laughs) Whatever comes first to mind for that person, what is on their bucket list that they want to go see and they know the least about? Okay. And you've been around, it looks like I see you have five countries here you're in now. Ghana, Uganda, Burundi, Rwanda, DRC. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. any of these places that you've been to that uh, you found to be very inspirational or any, any thoughts there? All of them. They're, they're <laughs> all cheating. You are countries. cheating. That's an unfair question. It's like asking you to have a favorite child or something. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. All right. We'll take that first one. Though. And, <laughs> but I will, 
I will say, actually, thinking about it from what I really love all the countries we work in, and they're they're they all have their unique strengths to the to their countries. Burundi is a country, though, that does seem to be overlooked a lot. It's a small country just south of Rwanda. Rwanda and Burundi used to be one country, Mm. Um, and so I would just put in a plug to remember about Burundi and what's going on there because it's 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 really ranking very low in a lot of the um, systems okay. today, both on poverty and health and education metrics. Gotcha. Okay, great, great. And so let's just let people know, um, how do they get in touch with Spark Micro Grants and learn more about what you're doing? Um, I'll let you go ahead and, and do a plug there. Um, you, you might have Thanks, your social Adam. networks or website, whatever you want to tell people. Super. Yeah. Get in touch with us. We're at SparkMG on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Um, email us on our website, sparkmicrograns.org. If you want to contribute to sponsoring a village, volunteer with us, ask us any sorts of questions. We're a learning organization and we'd love to be in touch and support you guys in any way that you want to get involved with Global Progress. Awesome. I, I love that. Global progress. I always say moving humanity forward. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, Sasha, I love what you're doing and I really appreciate this conversation. Um, guys, check out what their, their website and what they're doing. I think you're really going to be impressed. They have tons of really cool uh, information. Um, it's inspiring. So, Sasha, thanks again. Reach out anytime. Thanks, Adam. Wonderful to hear about some of the other work going on here as well. And congrats on on all the work that you do. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Cheers. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast.